0: At that point, I had to make a decision, and my decision was that I won't dishonor my country or my corps or the men that I served with. So I chose to die in that casket.
1: This is episode number 157 with Major James Capers. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You are in for an absolute treat uh, on this episode of the American Snippets podcast. Once again, my name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my partner and co host, Barbara Allen, and it is such an honor and an absolute privilege. To, be able to have Major James Capers on the show today. Major James Capers is the son of a sharecropper who was falsely convicted for a crime and fled to another state. Uh, Capers grew up in a time that racism ran rampant and the Jim Crow era was in full swing. But that did not stop him from achieving one extraordinary accomplishment after another throughout a storied career in the United States Marine Corps. His memoir, Faith Through the Storm, offers an in-depth journey of Major Capers' life as a young Black American before, during, and after his service. From trauma to triumph to tragedy and heroism on the streets of America and the jungles of Vietnam, Major Capers' story is the kind that legends are made of. Major Capers became the first African American to receive a battlefield commission while in Third Force Recon, He was the first African-American Marine officer featured on a Marine recruitment poster. His incredible courage and leadership led to him being inducted into the Commando Hall of Honor for Special Forces, receiving the Silver Star, Bronze Star, and Purple Heart with four gold stars. And his nomination for the Medal of Honor has also been recently renewed. But above all his accomplishments, Major Capers is most of all a loving husband and father who now lives with the memory of a son who died in his arms and the love of his life who died shortly after. His nonprofit, the Gary Capers Foundation, was launched in their honor. In this episode of American Snippets, Major Capers shares raw and real stories of love, loss, and sacrifice both in and out of service. He talks freely about what the flag means to him, the men he lost in Vietnam, and the woman who stood... By his side through it all. So, without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Major James Capers. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast.
2: Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co host, Barb Allen. Now, you've just heard uh, my partner and fiance, Dave, do an introduction and talk to you, tell you about today's guest, Major Capers. You all know that I have a very large soft spot in my heart for Vietnam veterans because of the way they've directly impacted me and my family, as well as countless other families throughout this country. And if there was ever a community of people that had every justification to turn their backs on America and Americans and just stew in bitterness for the rest of their lives, I believe it's the Vietnam veterans. And yet, they did the exact opposite. They have come forward time and time again over the decades to serve others and continue serving their country in various ways. And if there's ever any community within the Vietnam veterans who had even more of justification to turn their back on their country and be bitter about the way that they were treated and the experiences they had, it would be the African-American service members who served in that time that Major Caper served. And his story and this man are certainly no exception to that. And major capers how you how you handled everything throughout your life and the way you've emerged from it and the lesson you set the the example you set for all of us is absolutely remarkable and when I say I am in all of you, I, I mean it entirely i 'm so appreciative of you taking the time to sit down and share your story with us today
0: Well, thank you so much you know, it, <laughs> it means a lot because uh, A lot of young men and women of my generation didn't hear the words that you just spoke. The country turned its back on us for no good reason. So now at this point in time in our lives, we appreciate those words. It mean a lot. Thank you very much. I I, uh, think about those days and now we've come full circle and the country understands the sacrifices that that generation
2: made Yes, and you know, I am one of those people who grew up when I was growing up We were in in a time of peace and I, I remember specifically my mother taking me to a parade downtown It was the veterans day parade. I was all excited. I thought we were going to see veterinarians and animals and I remember being disappointed It was a bunch of dudes walking down the street. I'm like, where's the veterinary? I didn't even know that's how naive I was, you know um, growing up because we were just lucky to be in that window of peace And now of course I am fully immersed in the community and and understand that and my kids certainly do as well Um, And we're going to get back to that later on about the attitude and the mindset of the country and and those who serve But let's go. Let's go into it At first I did have the pleasure. We were talking before we recorded. I read your book uh, Faith through the storm and it is an incredible book I'm going to talk more about this later and offer to send a copy to some of our our audience members uh, who chime in and I'm gonna just pull things from that book, from that story, we're gonna get into it. You were raised, you were the son of a sharecropper. Um, This is how drastically your life has changed. You were the son of a sharecropper and you lost several of your siblings uh, who were older than you to childhood diseases and your father was placed on a chain gang for a crime he didn't commit. I mean, how, just let's break that down a little bit and go through that part of your childhood and the memories you have, and how your father said something to you, even as you were leaving for the Marines, that leads me to believe that he is just a man of character and strength, as well as your mother, and passed that on to you. Um, but how how was that mindset and mentality being raised? Can you talk a little bit about your childhood there?
0: Yeah, we were sharecroppers in a little small town called Bishopville, South Carolina. And the theory behind sharecropping, we shared the land with the owner of the land. And uh, we worked uh, with the land, planted uh, cotton, tobacco, raised animals, and that's how we lived. I, as you mentioned, we had four siblings who passed away from early childhood diseases, the first child to be born was James Capers Jr. He passed away, and I was the last child to be born, so I would rename James Capers Jr. However, I have no birth certificate, so there's no real, no real, I would say that no documents that show that I even exist. So in the South there was a lot of uh theories, superstitions that that perhaps I was the first James Capers Jr. that was somehow reincarnated. And that's I'm not quite sure how you unpack all of that, but uh to forward, children passed away and there was four of us left. We worked a farm, my father got in a little trouble, he was placed on a chain gang and had to leave South Carolina. My mother and my other siblings, we stayed behind and until we could make arrangements to join him in Baltimore. Meanwhile, I was the last child to be born, and I got sick and obviously was going the way of some of the other children. And to ensure my survival, I was given to a well-meaning white family who took me in and cared for me until I was able to survive on my own. We then moved to uh, Baltimore, where we were reconnected with my father. And that's I went to the school system there. I didn't know how old I was, because there's no birth certificate. And I didn't know how old I was until the FBI did a search and gave me the birth date that I, I now enjoy, the 25th of August, 1937, which means that Tuesday of this week, I turned 83 years old, but had it not been for this benevolent family, probably wouldn't have turned out this way. So I'm the benefactor of some very kind people. And even though this was in the Jim Crow South, they were good people. And don't want to make a political statement, but had it not been for them, I wouldn't have survived. So I think whoever, I have no real memories of this of this family, but I know it's a true story because my aunts and uncles, we all went to Baltimore and they told me these stories many, many times. So that gives me an appreciation for human beings. And We could probably talk about that all day long, but that's as much as I can tell you right about now.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of things we could go into all day long. Why did the FBI do a search for your birth certificate?
0: (laughs) I had to go to school at some point, and I didn't know how old I was when I joined the Marines. I had to have a clearance, and I worked for the National Security Agency, and you had to have a top secret clearance to work there. By this time, I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. And uh, somewhere along the line, they figured out uh, a birth date and they gave it to me and I received a top secret clearance. And I went through school, uh, met my bride of 50 years and I assume the date they gave me was accurate. I don't know.
2: That's wild. So I love in your book, and then I was treated to see the documentary, which we'll talk about as well. The way you talk about your wife, Dottie is just so moving and, and so, so sweet. And it's, I don't know many people that lay eyes on the person they're going to spend their life with at 15 years old and are right about it, you know? So it does sound like you two had an an exceptionally special relationship and she seems like somebody she, I will tell you this just from what I read about her in your book, she was way stronger than I ever was when, um, in terms of all, all things dealing with a spouse who was in the military and I didn't deal with you know half of half of what she dealt with. So huge respect. A lot of people don't understand what military spouses and military families go through the way that marriages uh, are stretched when, when somebody is deployed and definitely on all the combat deployments or all the time in combat that you did. And I love how open you are about talking about those struggles and about how it was when you came home as well. There was one part. Well, let's talk again. I, I keep jumping ahead because there are so many incredible things about your story. So you met you met Dottie when you were 15 and you convinced her. I don't think it didn't sound like it took much convincing to get her to go to California with you when.
0: when no, not at all.
2: <laughs> when you were finally ready.
0: Well, She's the love of my life. And, and much of the success that I enjoy belongs to her. Uh, we had a child who was born without sight. He was the love of my life. He died in my arms of appendicitis because he was misdiagnosed. and he and my wife are buried up in Arlington National Cemetery together, which is where I will lie for a eternity with him. And I will see them and have them there waiting for me. That is the the love story. I loved her the first time I saw her. And when she closed her eyes, the day we lost her, she told me she loved me. And that was probably losing her and my son so close together. And I'm sure you can understand that, being a widow and, uh, and especially being a gold star widow. I'm a gold star father. My son, who was a military dependent, died in my arms, and I've never been the same again. Uh, you're lucky you found love again, and that is. I wish you both well. Um you you certainly earned it. Me, I haven't been so 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 lucky. My extended family members, they've been trying to find someone to keep me company, and it just doesn't work that way. Love has, has to be in that equation somewhere. And I loved Dottie for 50 years. And hardly a day goes by when I don't tell her that I still write to her. You do? I write to her every week. Sometimes uh, that's just what I feel like doing. I want her to, I'm sure she knows, and she's probably watching this wonderful experience with you and wishing you well in your life.
2: Oh, thank you. That that's very sweet. And you know, I am blessed that I have not had to. I have never lost a child. You know, so I cannot imagine something you know more painful than than that. And you know, I still talk to my husband on a on a regular basis, and sometimes I curse him out for for leaving me here to deal with all the, <laughs> the stuff I've had to deal with. You know. And other times I just say, thank you, you know, for loving me. Or and I have these conversations you know, and uh, the man that I did ultimately get to meet and fall in love with again, shares his same birthday and the birthday of our son. And so there are a lot of different signs, you know, but I think sometimes God knows when somebody really needs that extra push and love in their life and when somebody is strong enough to go it alone. And I think that's the difference between you and I right there, sir, is, you know, God looked around they're like oh no he's got this <laughs> you know and then God looked down on me and said somebody get to this lady quick because you know? <laughs> so i think that might that might be a key difference from us but you know, that's just that's just my theory so you talk about your time in the marines and i am also blessed to know uh, some Marines in my life one Marine Corps veteran Vietnam veteran and Gulf War veteran in particular who's become very close to us His call name. His name is monsoon. That's what everyone calls him um, And you know, he shared his stories of the time in the Marine Corps and reading your book and getting to meet you and learn your story It just also rams home to me more of it makes more of what he's shared with me real uh, because it's just more layers and more layers and gives me more of an appreciation for what you all went through, even the training that you went to, I was looking at this training, the environmental survival training, jungle warfare training, search and evasion. Talk about some of those train. And you're young. You're young when you're going through this. Mm-hmm. I, I think of my boys who are that same age as you were then. And I think of my boys in those situations and I just about lose it. <laughs> so, yeah. Can you talk about some of the trainings that that you went through in those days? Oh. In the-
0: I spent 22 years, most of my adult life, in the military. And because of the special operations unit I was in, required uh, quite a bit of extensive physical training and and psychological, psychological training. I was telling a couple of my young extended family members the other day that when I first got into this line of work, way back in the late fifties, they took me and put me in a casket and closed the lid and asked me my company commander's name. And you're supposed to give only your, only your name, rank, and serial number but claustrophobia sort of, uh, they put me in the casket, asked me my company manager's name and I refused to give it to him. So they said, well, we're gonna keep you in here till you give up the information. And claustrophobia closed in. And they said that they to leave me in there until I confess. And I thought for a moment, how do I do this? This is a real challenge. Do I go and say I'm a United States Marine? You have my rank and serial number, or do I say that uh, I'm gonna give you what you need because if I don't, I'm gonna die in here. At that point, I had to make a decision. And my decision was that I won't dishonor my country or my corps or the men that I served with. So I chose to die in that casket. But when I made that decision, and I decided, no, I don't want to die in here. So maybe it's easier to give them the information that they needed. I knew my company commander's name. I knew that. And I could have given that to them, and maybe, perchance, I wouldn't have to be in this very uncomfortable and unusually small place. And the air in this casket was rapidly thinning out. And the instructors who were there said, well, he's not going to give it up, let him die. And he walked to the door. And they said they were walking out, and I heard the door close. So at that point, it seemed to me like this is my fate. I could have yelled out, come get me, but I didn't. It was a challenge, and I had to swear this oath, God and country, and all those various things you talk about. But this is the crucible. When you give your word, you have to own up to it. I didn't give up my company commander's name. But inside, I wanted to. I wanted to. And I always felt guilty because I come pretty close, but I didn't give it up. And that was the standard that I kept in in, in battles around the world, battlefields that I saw men die very uncomfortable and very difficult circumstances, but I learned that was my first time in special operations. But I learned from that you learn how much you can do when you put your mind to it.
2: It it seems like, and that's why I wanted to to get into a little bit with you as well, because again, getting into your story in the book and then in the documentary, it's very easy for somebody to say, if you put your mind to it, you can you can do anything, and we we all hear that all the time. But there are very few people who apply that to the level that you and and those that you served with applied it. And I don't know their specific stories, except for you know how they were a part of your story, and they certainly showed that as well, time and time again. But the respect that they had for you and that they still have for you to the point you know, they would literally, you were w- literally willing to die for each other um, is e- extraordinary. And the things that you did go through, even not even just physically, but in terms of the way that you were treated when you went in, you know, on your way to boot camp, I think it was when you had to eat in the basement instead of eating up in the restaurant with the white service members and the um, instructor telling you he he's told that Negroes can't swim and weren't going to give you a chance to to swim. I mean, the attitude and the disrespect that you were shown by the people that you were serving alongside. I mean, most people I know, probably myself included, I don't, have, I don't know that I have the humility or strength it takes to, to, to get myself through somebody treating me that way and then still show up and give 100,000% of my energy and soul to do a good job. How do you do that Talk about some of those instances and how did you just have the discipline and I don't even know the word I'm looking for, but the grace to to not just give in to whatever that must have invoked and just and double down and work even harder.
0: It's, time, it's called faith. When you mentioned the story about having to eat in a segregated restaurant, our troops who were African American, and we were called Negroes back in those days. In other words, we were taken down the basement. We were fed, not as well as the other Marines who were going off to Paris Island, also. But you know, we thought about that. We looked around, but then down come down the steps walked a young chaplain. He was Caucasian. And he sat down with us. And, you know, he said, you know, one day this will change. He's a man of God, man of faith. And he said, one day you won't have to sit in the basement. He believed he would sit at the right hand of God. He sat down there with us. His faith would not allow him to sit upstairs where he could have he could have eaten, but he chose to sit with us. A chaplain, I never knew his name, but he was such an inspiration, and he was someone that we needed. And I've run into chaplains and corpsmen and nurses and doctors in four continents. So when we were at our lowest. He gave us the strength to say it's going to be okay. One day, you will not have to sit in the basement. And that day came. That day came. So there's always faith. There's always someone who will bring that faith to you. And I carried that faith with me all all the way through many wars that I was involved in. So those are things that carried me forward. I remember this young chaplain, and he gave me a Bible. I guess he had a bunch of these little small Bibles, and he gave them out. But mine was special, and I kept it for years and years. I probably still got it in some of my baggage now. But it was a strength for me, and there were many cases that I saw of men who didn't look like me, but felt like this was their mission. You don't hear about those types of people too often, like the family who took me in in rural South Carolina. And this weekend, I will go back to South Carolina, tomorrow as a matter of fact, and they will have a parade and all those various things, which I certainly don't deserve, uh, but I'm going because I owe them so much but i'm sure you know about this little event coming up
2: i really? do i do and just the fact right there that you said you know i surely don't deserve it again that is complete humility that is 100% genuine that i've encountered time and again in people that just, it just it's humbling really and refreshing as well because hey you absolutely do deserve it if anybody does deserve it it would it would be you uh, for for all you've done for our country, and the example that, again, you continue to set. And obviously, they're not you're having a statue unveiled. A, a statue of you is being unveiled in is it Bishopville, uh, South Carolina? Yes,
0: Bishopville yeah.
2: yeah, in South Carolina. And people don't just create statues of others who have no impact on them. you know, um and so the fact that so many people care so much and want to make it known, loud and clear that you are somebody who has inspired them should hopefully give you some measure of saying hey maybe i do deserve this you know and not not in a boastful way of course but um just just know and carry that with you that you have done something that most people have not with their lives and that is certainly something that is worth recognition and i imagine people will pass by that statue for years to come And you know and read the inscription and what a legacy a different you know A a different layer of a legacy that you're leaving behind So i'm super excited to see the stories about that and pass that on and share as well And I understand there'll be a documentary screening as well tomorrow night
0: Yes Right tomorrow night, right? Mm
2: -hmm. The documentary uh that was done about you which again I was able to get a sneak peek of and is another incredible thing that I cannot wait to blast loud and and wide um, when when that is officially released. Um, I'm gonna bounce back a second to a little lighter minute because this did make me laugh a little. And sometimes it could be when I read stories or get to know when I'm reading your story and say, oh my gosh, this man is invincible. There is nothing that he does wrong or messes up or he just, you know, courage under fire and all that. And then I got to the part about your wedding night and I felt a little better because I laughed. (laughs) I laughed a little yeah. bit. So <laughs> let's, just, um, let's, just make, let's just go into that for one second because it's a hilarious story. Um, and it, I think it also just proves that underneath everything, we're all just human, right? So can you backtrack for a minute to your wedding night and just share how that went?
0: Oh, yeah, it didn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, my pastor we had a little wedding at my pastor's home. And I was going to be shipping out to Camp Pendleton. I decided to stay in the military, so I told my bride to be that uh, we were together that I could stay in the military or I could get out and come back home. And she asked me, "Well, what will you do? What will you, where will you go?" And I said, "I could go to California." Then that was that's. When I asked her if she would go with me, she didn't think about it. She said, yes. I guess she loved me from the day we saw each other. For years we told each other, or I told her, that I think she winked at me when I walked by. (laughs) And she said that she didn't wink at me. But I think she, matter of fact, before she closed her eyes, the day she passed away, she winked at me. She's going to leave you
2: with something to think about.
0: Right, exactly. And I loved her so much and love her more today than I could imagine. But she she was such an important part in my life. But it didn't start off that way. They say a bad beginning makes a good ending. And when I got out of my father's car going to the pastor's home, I dropped my my marriage license out of my pocket, so we're standing there as I remember, and I was kidding my wife the whole day that if the Marine Corps wanted you to have a wife, they would issue you one. <laughs> so I was telling her all that time that you know Marines don't want a wife or this or that, and so when I was standing there, and the pastor, his name was Reverend Jesse, if I remember. Um, he says, where's your marriage license, son? I said, in my pocket here. I reached in my pocket, no marriage license. So I'm getting into panic now. And Dottie is looking at me. You won't believe the look she was giving me. But I was kidding that whole day about not getting married. Then I had to fess up to the pastor that I didn't have a marriage license. Then I said, you know, Reverend, can I talk to you for a second? because I only had a few days before I had to report to Camp Pendleton. And he said, what's the matter, son? I said, I don't have a marriage license. He said, you know, you have to, I can't marry. He said, come on, listen, I'll, I said, I'll, I'll go Monday morning, I'll get the license i bring in. He said, no, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So we had to go home to my parents' house, having not been married. And I was sitting here about, maybe about 11, 12 o'clock that night, And the phone rang and some kid had found my marriage place in the street and called my parents. So Dottie and I and my parents went back down to the pastor's house. We got married about one o'clock. She never forgave me, but we laughed about it for many, many, many years. (laughs) And we had many wonderful years, 50 years. After 50 years, we celebrated our anniversary. We re- renewed our vows a week before she passed away. Uh. And they had her dressed up in a pretty gown and wheeled her down to a big banquet room. And my pastor came in and re- re- renewed our vows. Then the next week we lost her. But when we went back to the hospice program, we sat there that evening and she said, You know, we didn't do bad, we didn't do bad. By this time, my only child is gone. And, and, uh, and she was on the way out, but I told her I loved her. And she closed her eyes, but I still think she winked at me. <laughs> I, think she, I think she loved me and I loved her so much, so much. And today, I'm still hurting. I haven't gotten over this yet. She's been gone 11 years now, 11 years now. Yeah. And I'm still, I was a better man for having met her.
2: Yeah. Well, that's not something that is gotten over ever. You know, you just, you learn how to roll it into your life. But I mean, you, you know, uh, about that you've had to, you've had to endure a lot of things that um, a lot of people would just, fall and be crippled under. I mean, you, in your time in Vietnam, you went on 50 something classified missions. You grew close to people. And when you talk in the book about how you just start to change after time, there comes a certain point where so many people kept dying that every 24 hours you would get word of somebody else you knew uh, who had been killed. And the constant fear for your own life and knowing that at any moment your own life can end, you know, what, that is to to live under and then the things you had to do in faith comes in so often in your book you uh or in your story you know you talk about asking god to forgive you for what you would have to do the next day and how you had to i mean can you just talk about that that concept for a moment um how Good people with good hearts and good minds and good souls are put in positions where you have to do and see and experience horrific things that are really only described as as hell, I guess. um, for Things that the human spirit and mind is not, I don't think, designed to to endure. How how did you come to terms with that and, and carry on?
0: Actually, I don't think I ever really come to terms with it. I still suffer from something called PTSD, which was partly the war itself, the aftermath of war, and all those endless nights I spent in Bethesda Hospital, the hospital in Japan, in Alaska, different places around the world. But today I still Hear the sounds. They give me sleeping pills. They give me a pill for PTSD. Uh, Different types of medication. I've never got over the loss of my child. Yeah. The loss of my wife. Then through the years, of course, I lost my mother, my father, and the rest of my family. I'm the only survivor left of the family now. I'm it. We're down to the wire now but I have a, a, a large extended family. They were here tonight to celebrate my 83rd birthday. It was uh, a wonderful time. And uh, I still have PTSD. I still dream those wonderful dreams of Dottie capers, When the doctors told me I would never walk again, she said that I would walk again. And when I was on a few days' leave from Bethesda, I had to learn to use uh, crutches, the cane, wheelchair, and all various things that, to get me to the point where I could walk on my own. And one day, Dottie drove me to the parking lot where I was attached to after I got out of Bethesda. Wasn't out, but I was just being a few days, and uh, she left the baby in the in the car, and she said, "Sweetheart, let's see if we can walk." I hadn't walked; I was on crutches and canes and various things like this. Both my legs had been broken, and I was—I still had seven pieces of metal still lodged in my my body, but she helped me out of the car and draw took out of her purse a piece of chalk and she drawed it on the line in the parking lot. Draw the line on the on the ground and asked me to stand behind that piece of chalk. Then she walked out about 10 feet and stretched out her arms. Said sweetheart You can do this. Just walk on to me. I'll be here. Just walk on. And I took a few steps that I hadn't taken in a long time. I got about halfway, and I fell. And I wanted her to come pick me up. I wanted somebody to pick me up. Donnie didn't move. She didn't move. She stood there with her arms out and said, you can do this. Just walk to me. I'll be here. And I walked a few more steps. Then my body says, there's too much pain. I can't do this anymore. I'm tired of the pain. Somebody take away the pain. I can't go any further. And Dottie says, yes, you can. And I walked, and I got to her, and I fell, and she grabbed me. As I fell into her arms, she grabbed me and said, you can do this. And we were walking for the rest of our lives. Without her and that strength she had, and even when I fell, she says, You rise again. God is here with me. God is standing here with me. And you walk to us. And she put me in the car and drove me home. She said, I, I believe in you. You can do this. And I walk, even right now, uh, I'm still walking. And she's still guiding me. Sometimes when I feel the pain, I can hear those words. God is here with us. Now, she's sitting at the right hand of God now with my son. You see, my son is no longer blind. Yeah. God has cured him. Dottie no longer has cancer. She's with God now. And they're together. And God has promised me I'll see them again. I'll see them again. But that's what marriage is about. Faith through the storm. I've been through many storms at sea and different places. But it's always been my faith. And I still have that faith. And I do believe that God will carry me home one
2: day and we'll all be together as a family. Well, I believe that too. I very strongly. And I love having that reaffirmed when I get to to speak to people who, who also believe that. Uh, and you talk about that again, through your book that in Lebanon, things happen that changed the way you look at life when you were evac out of that last mission, by the way, you talk about how you had two broken, well, you had broken thighs, I think uh, on that last mission. And, injuries everywhere. And all of you were very badly injured. And it wasn't like you got injured and laid there and somebody came and picked you up and swished you away to a hospital. I mean, you still had to get yourselves out of that situation, bleeding and in pain and exhausted and all of those things. Where does that strength come from? Is that adrenaline? Is that faith? Is that just not even thinking about it? Like, how did you all... On that last final mission, um, after all of those missions that you'd gone on, and all of those times, all those situations you were you personally were in, and came through. Um, it was that last mission that that almost got you, you know. But but how did you how did you all get out of that last one and just not give up? Same way, same thoughts.
0: Well, because God was always with us. There's many times on many missions I can't explain how we survive, except for God. That's my rationale. Because for a while at a place called Quezon, which was one of our nastier battles, and we talked a little bit about that on the doc- in the documentary. I think all of us. Uh, we were getting rocketed pretty much every day, and you know the bad guys that come screaming through the wire and blowing themselves up, and so a nasty situation. Lost a lot of men up there. Uh, we didn't lose our faith, but it was challenging times. Challenging times, and I think most of us prayed a lot in places like that. Uh, intentional prayer, but. We didn't, God didn't strike us with a bolt of lightning we ate. Where's God? Um, We need you tonight. But God does things when he he wants them done, not when we want them done. And those nights up there with the, the rockets falling, I think there were times when we needed God. We needed a symbol. We needed something hit me with a bolt of lightning, but just show me that you're there. Yeah, I believe in you. I want to believe in you, but I need something. And many young Marines and sailors on their knees praying, give me a signal. But it, we had to go back to the battle. But then there were other times when we were coming home from the last mission. We had more men that could get on the helicopter and it took us three tries to get off the ground. But when we were in the air flying home to the hospital, when the helicopter started to go down, we said, the it was going down. It was overloaded and there were holes in the helicopter. And um, that's when it seemed like the hand of God reached up and set the helicopter right so it would fly home to the hospital. When we were praying in Kason and asked God to show us a sign, that was a sign there. God says, I heard you. I was not asleep. I heard you when you prayed. And now I'm taking you home. I heard you. And we all survived, except for the war dog, when we brought his body home. So God will do things when he wants them done, but he always hears you and he heard us. And he showed that I don't need a pilot. I don't need gas. I can fly this helicopter and I will fly it and all of us survive. Those are the symbols that we asked for at case on and it showed on the way home when the helicopter did not crash. Only because God decreed it, I'm going to take you home. I
2: am God. And I heard you. So, I mean, I think that kind of faith goes a long way in in explaining how a a person just actually makes it through everything that you've made through for your service, for those 50 something um, top secret missions you went on. Plus, I don't know how many more um, you, you went on as well for that. And and all those years of service and the things you did you've been awarded the silver star You've been inducted into the special operation commands hall of honor your purple heart recipient bronze star recipient uh, Among other things and you have an active petition going to see you awarded the medal of honor for which you've been nominated Uh, It is my great hope to see that happen as well. And I know that you don't Care about that in terms of fame or recognition. I just feel like there is a time when it comes when people should be honored in a way that is appropriate and should be uh, entered into the halls of history in every way possible. And I think you are among among those people. So I'd love to see that happen. Let's talk a, about a little bit some of the more you. You just threw some random things in your book and you just let them go like they were normal. But to the rest of the people, you know, you lived with a nomadic community of pygmies. Like what? Who does? <laughs> when you were training in environmental survival training in the Philippines. You talked mm-hmm. about how you lived with a community of pygmies. Mm-hmm. Um, just share a little bit about that because that's not an ordinary experience for, I'm guessing, almost anybody who was not with you to have experience. So bring, it, bring us along on that experience for a minute.
0: Yeah, that was a group of uh, pygmies who migrated from Africa 2,000 years ago And they were little people. And naval intelligence parachuted us into uh, the Philippines. We were given a half a chicken and a bag of rice and a canteen of water. And you were supposed to survive for two weeks out there. You were on your own in the Philippines, the the pygmies, Uh, interesting people. They were nomads. And when we joined them, uh, we would move from place to place. We would hunt and fish. And we learned to live off the land. We learned to be nomads. We didn't have a, a village. We just moved from place to place. We did hunt and fish. And we learned to live like they lived. Uh, we fished in the water. And we climbed trees to harvest bee eggs. And we shared The elders, we took care of the elders and the children. You know, they were wonderful young people, and they learned so much. We learned to make poison arrows and darts. We learned to fish in the river and learn to fish with our hands at night. And uh, the chief, was about three feet tall. He had a long white beard. He walked around with a big stick. And he was the elder. He made the laws, and the laws were followed according to to him. I don't know if they had a religion or not, but uh, it was an exciting time for me because I looked like them. And they would come up to me and look at me and rub my skin. I was the only African-American in the group which most of the times I was uh, because at the time not many African-Americans were really interested in that line of work because it required a lot of swimming and a lot of these kids never grew up swimming in a swimming pool, didn't learn that because a lot of neighborhoods were segregated and you could only, well, you couldn't swim at the white swimming pool it was against the law so if you could find a swimming hole somewhere you can swim in but uh, a lot of those kids who never learned to swim uh, was not proficient enough to go through like your underwater programs, your SEAL programs but on occasion there come a guy like Jim Capers somewhere along the line there was a guy like Jim Capers who just wouldn't take notes No, I can do this. All you have to do, don't give me anything extra, just give me an opportunity. I'll show you, I'll show you I can do it. And I did this, I made three combat swims in in, in Vietnam, two combat dives, and I made a swim of 1500 meters in enemy territory at night. So only because I was given an opportunity because I showed that I wasn't gonna quit. Oh, well, they try to make me quit. Yeah, there was a few times when I thought about it. I need to get out of here. <laughs> but uh, okay. no, I, I stuck with it. And I, I was the only master diver we had. And I got to a lot of this stuff involving water. And it didn't bother me. I wasn't afraid. Of, I guess I was a little bit wasn't afraid of much at that point in time in my life. There wasn't, wasn't an enemy that I was afraid of. And I never lost a battle. I say that with a little bit of ego. Uh, had some wounded, but, but we never gave up. I was never captured, never captured in no. any territory. But in terms of uh, the various places I've, I've been, when I worked with Negritos and different people uh, around the world, because we were special operators and we were sent to different places training or for certain operations Uh, but it didn't scare me because for the most part I was in command at some point in time and my men followed me they never let me down
2: no it doesn't seem that way it doesn't seem you let them down either you have a one another line in your book and I know we already talked about where that came from but it is another way you, you say history has a way of forgetting good people and the little things they do to make our country great but I never will and I just want to get into that for a second like what are what are you you mentioned a couple of the people who came into your life in their own you know in their own ways but um, what are some ways that you think that somebody can come into the life of Say of a service member now who's going through through those combat deployments and coming home, what are some ways that civilians can come into the lives of those returning from combat or those still those like you still in the aftermath of combat and even the World War II veterans that we have uh, you know still with us who are dealing, what are some little ways that we as civilians can come into the lives of you all and and make a difference?
0: Well, I think they're doing a wonderful job now. (laughs) When I was in Atlanta some years ago, they had this program where civilians would wait for our soldiers and Marines to come home. They'd be waving the American flag. They welcome them home at the airport. I didn't get that. We didn't get the police. No, you got quite
2: a different welcome home, I read. Yeah, go ahead.
0: But nowadays, they have parades for these young guys who uh, come home, their families are there. My wife and child didn't know where I was. I was shipped from Fubai to Fula, these are Vietnamese names, to Japan. And they flew us on to Alaska. It was 10 degrees below zero. They took us all off the aircraft so we could be, the aircraft could be refueled for the flight home to Virginia. And it was snowing, snow all over the ground, and you could see blood tra- trails from these young warriors as they carried the stretchers along. Most of these young Marines were bleeding in the snow with little tropical blankets on them coming from a tropical zone to Alaska. And now we're going home, and there were no parades. Our parents didn't know where we were going. Uh, they would usually send a telegram. Now they have young Marine officers go to the next of Ken's home and say, I'm sorry about this or that. And my wife got one of those telegrams. My folks got one of those telegrams. But I've been wounded um, somewhere, but we don't know where. And only when I come home did they know that I was really alive. Uh, Because after three Purple Hearts, you get a ticket home. You don't stay in country if you have three Purple Hearts. Well, I stayed because our officers, most of them, had been killed and wounded and I was promoted from sergeant to staff sergeant. I was given what they call a battlefield commission. Then I took command. I'd never been to officer's training or basic school. I'd applied twice, but they turned me down. Said I was considered, but not selected. Even though I met all of the qualifications, they said no. But in a little place in Fubai, my colonel called me in, and took off my sergeant's chevrons and placed on the gold bars that I had seen before, but i have never worn. And he pronounced me an officer and a gentleman. From all things, Jim Capers is now a gentleman. I'd never spent one day in the place where you learn to be a gentleman. <laughs> uh, but I was now the commander. And those guys depended on me. And I carried it all the way through until I was medevac on the last day. I never quit. No. So I never had the officer's training.
2: Well, I think that there are a lot of people who are in plenty of places where they can learn to be a gentleman, and they still never figure it out. So it doesn't matter <laughs> you know, where you go. I think it's the person. I think you either are or you are not. And I think uh, you certainly, certainly are. Your father instilled in you this mindset, I think. So I, f- I feel like part of you was probably just born with a different kind of heart and a different kind of will than the average person. But your father said to you, and I'm going to ask you to, to go because I know that you, this is in your head and in your heart as well, that if there's 10 men going up the stairs and only one are going to make it, can you share that? With, with, yes, him. exactly
0: what he said. And we were going off to, he took me to the uh, train station, a place called Camden Station in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, he told me, Son, you're going to have to be a man now. You're my youngest son. And you're going off. He didn't say fight a war, but certainly did. He said, If 10 men start up a flight of steps, if 10 men and only one makes it to the top. You believe that you'll be that man, and it will be so. And I got on the train and left my father there, at Camden. He couldn't go back to South Carolina, which is where the boot camp was. He was a wounded man, He never went home again, never went home. Uh, But he left me with those words and it carried me throughout my lifetime. I thought about those words many times when I was not given a promotion that maybe I should have gotten but I stuck it out. I didn't didn't quit. And I honored my uh, my oath. I did the best I could. And uh now I'm an eighty three year old man. Uh I feel Not like Jack Benny used to say he was 39. That's, he was a comedian years ago. He never admitted how old he was. He would always say, I'm I'm 39. (laughs) Uh, I wish I, well, I don't wish I was 39 because maybe Dottie and Gary wouldn't have been in my life. And, you know, so I'm happy to have lived to enjoy this day and to share some of my emotions. Uh, I wanted to go to Arlington to put some flowers on my wife and my son's grave, but because of the virus, it's been closed there. But that's one of the things I'm gonna do when I come back from Bishopville. I will go and, and share with her, but she, I wish she was going with me to Bishopville. She will be too. She's always there, she'll know. I wish that she was standing beside me and say, you can do this. You can always do this. She was my rock. She was a person that I depended on so much. So much. And now without her, it seemed like, you know, I'm not deserving. You know, when I say, I understand that people are saying nice things about me, but
2: She's calling you. She's calling you to say, yes, you do deserve it.
0: (laughs) Somebody called me to wish me a happy birthday, I'm sure.
2: (laughs) Well, look, I think it's not about being a perfect, infallible human being. Um, I I don't think that's what it is. What it is at all. I think people are more I know for me for certain, it's the respect and awe that we talk about are the fact that you manage the infallibilities of of a, of a human being in such a way to crush them and make them like irrelevant because you just have that mindset and that will. And that that is something that the majority of us don't have the the capacity to tap into at this point. you know, so, I think that is it. And you are a true testament to what can be achieved when you just never, ever give up, when you have that faith, when you, when you truly live service over self instead of just saying the motto, you know? So that, I think, sets you apart. And you represent an era and a community of people who have done so much for us and whom were treated so poorly by our, by our country in return and never received the support that you did, uh, that you should have. And so, you know, all of those things rolled into one, so just soak it up, you know, and, and take it and, uh, and, uh, and know that it comes from a, from a good place from people who genuinely care and respect you, or, you know, care about and respect you. Um, well, you know,
0: I, I think about those things and I'm honored to be going home. I didn't grow up there, but, you know, they're honoring me and whatever parade and, uh, statue and, you know, When I think back when I was at Kason, uh there was some bad nights up there. The enemy would come through the lines, yelling and screaming and blow themselves up. They are called sappers. They'd blow a hole in the wire and come through and, and the Marines would get out of their foxholes. And it was close combat. Nasty, not dinner type dinner type uh, conversations. Uh, when we were enduring one of those wild nights with the flares coming down and not like a movie set, no music, uh, human beings grappling to take lives and to stay alive, but I was an officer at that time. I was given a commission, and my job now is to be an officer. I never had one day of training as an officer. But I knew the enemy would be coming again. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I knew they'd be coming. I could hear them screaming and yelling and blowing bugles hopped up on opium and coming in for another attack. And I knew I was going to need a corman. So I searched out a young man, young corpsman, he, like he was walking through a, a curve. And I ran a curve and I, I said, doc, I'm going to need you. Why not you come with me now? I'm going to need you to come in again. He said, yes, sir. And he followed me. So I'm getting everybody ready now because you can hear the bugles and you can hear them screaming and yelling and and here they come. So I told the doc, stay with me. I'm going to need you. And he looked at me and he said, Lieutenant, I'm just a little tired. I'm just a little tired. Can I sit down for a moment? Just let me sit down. I said, "Okay, Doc, we got a minute or two. And Doc sat down at my feet. He died. He never got up. He'd been wounded. I didn't see it. There's holes in his chest. But he followed me. He never complained. He never cried. He just said, I'm just a little tired. Let me rest for a minute, and I'll be ready. He never got up. He was dead. And I never knew that he was dying. And for many, many years, I regretted that I didn't send him to the rear. He followed me and died at my feet. You know, where did these young men come from? Who are these young men who never complained? He was willing to give his, his life for his men? You know, I thought about that many times. that my worth being an officer? Why didn't I know? Did I make a mistake? Here's a young man who died at my feet. And I didn't know. Maybe I'm not worth being an officer. Maybe they should take these bars back. I'm sorry now, Doc. I didn't know his name. I'm sorry now. But those are the things you see. It breaks your heart. The bridge yard, and I was in charge. Am I good enough? Do I deserve this statue and parades and all those things? Well, I felt like I failed it. Felt like I failed him. So there are times now when I wish I'd have said, I'll get somebody else. But he did, didn't complain. Never complained. And he sat down and died at my feet. So I think about those things. Why didn't I know? Why wasn't I a better officer? Did I make excuses? Probably. But yet the enemy came right on time, right on time. Here they come again. And some of the words that the Marines would say, we're here. Come on, young guys with entrenching tools, human beings in a, a gigantic struggle. But we never lost case on. Didn't lose it. We didn't lose it. And then when I come home, after full and full Bai and all these various things that I went through and leaving Alaska, got on this giant bird We had dozens of wounded Lost four on the way home, and all the young men who were wounded, some had lost arms and legs, and, and I was an officer now on this aircraft. It was the only officer on the aircraft, going home now. And I could hear some of the young Marines calling for their mothers. Mama, mama, and some were crying. Mama, and it was wonderful young nurses we were going from young Marine and sailors and it's it's going to be okay. And I wanted to do something, but I was all for morphine. I could hear the crying and aircraft going up and down. You know, young men who never had a chance to see their first child born, who never saw the Super Bowl, never saw the World Series, they're going home now to a country that didn't appreciate the sacrifice they made. I was an older man now.
2: An old and man. Like- you were like 30, right? 29. Or so. <laughs> yeah.
0: But these were young guys, yeah, 18. I and I got home to Bethesda. You know, we got to Virginia and it took us all off the aircraft. Some of the army guys were going to Walter Reed and Navy and Marines were going to Bethesda. And I was lying there on the tarmac. And some person walked up, stood over me and urinated on me. Urinated on my body. I couldn't do a thing. Oh, my gosh. But that was homecoming for me. Nope, nobody reached down to say, good job, welcome home. No family. That's what he did He urinated on me. And in my mind, the demons came home, and I made a promise. I'll remember you, and I'll find you. But then God didn't work that way. I wouldn't recognize him today. But that happened to me, but I'm over that now. Because I've had good people, a good family, who stood by me and said, you need to put those things behind you. Satan... Get thee off of my shoulder. That was my homecoming. But yesterday I had a, my dear friend, Eric, he sent a very uh, humorous uh, video for my birthday yesterday and uh, cheered everybody up, cheered me up. Didn't expect it, but he told me about you and what a proficient person you were. And I would enjoy this conversation. And Eric was right. I've enjoyed this very much. And uh, I'm not so sure if I want to talk much more.
2: No, I hear you. I hear you. Um, If I could just ask you one quick question before.
0: You you were going to say that. I know. At Colombo. Oh, man, one more question. Oh, my
2: gosh, that was one of our favorite shows. But it just because it comes on the way that you were treated, and now we see such correlation with the way our law enforcement officers are being treated by people in this country. And I just wondered if you had any words of encouragement or advice or any message that you would offer to people, the law enforcement officers who are experiencing that same repeat of treatment that you all received when you returned home.
0: Well, uh, there is a correlation. Nowadays, you have the country that's swarmed uh, with Black Lives Matter. And there are obviously some things wrong. Uh, young men and women, uh, maybe, uh, can't say, maybe they're dead. And the country is sort of burning right now because of that. Uh, guys like me, It's not tough. I'll tell you where I stand. Uh, There are a lot of young civilians who decided that they would kneel rather than stand before the American flag. You can't ask me in this conversation what I kneel. You can ask me and I'll tell you what I think. No, I will never kneel before the American flag. I wouldn't do it before when I was doing the training, when they put me in a coffin, they also put me up on a chair and put a rope around my neck. Yeah, they put a rope around my neck and gave the rope to um, one white lieutenant from Alabama. says, you know, you guys hang Negroes in Alabama, why don't you just go ahead and hang it now? That's what I went to, the rope around my neck and the young officer, took that rope and threw it back at him, says, no, I won't do this, he's a Marine. I won't do that. That was my experience. What I'm saying, because of Black Lives Matter, I can understand that, of course. I grew up in some very difficult times. But will I, in front of the American flag, will I take a knee? No. I've seen too many American flags on dead bodies, different places. I took an oath. I'll honor that oath. Now, for those who want to do that, I'll honor their rights to do that, I'll fight for that right to them to do that. But no, not major capers. I spent 11 years overseas in different places and I have 19 holes to show for it. I still carry a piece of metal in my body today. I lost my mother, my father, all my, all my family. My only child died in my arms. My wife suffered from cancer. But now you ask me to kneel before the flag that puts me here today? No. I've been asked questions like this in training in different places, and I was told you can't swim, but yet I'm the guy that made the three combat dives, made the 1,500-meter swim in waters, Coal as ice, with sharks in the water. I did that. I did that, uh, and I survived it. And I brought my men along. And one Marine who almost got eaten up by a tiger shark rescued me. He didn't get eaten. No. So I've seen sharks in water. You, know, I, you name it, I've been through, Mostly, I spent a year in Bethesda with pain. That's sometimes, uh, you know, I wonder why did I do this? Why did I do this? But because I love this country, I know it sounds a little bit, you know, dopey. But no, that family who took me in when I was dying. What do I say to them now? What I say is, it's not whether it really happened or not. I was told it happened, therefore I believe it. And I'm a healthy
2: 83-year-old now. According to the FBI. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Sir, thank you so so very much again for your service, for all you've done, especially for taking the time to sit down with us. And on behalf of Dave and myself and everybody that I know and care about, a very big welcome home to you. And I hope you have a blessed weekend and a beautiful time. In your hometown.
0: You let your that wonderful audience you have. The book entitled Faith Through the Storm was written. Thank you. All of the proceeds, every dime goes to my nonprofit. I have a non that started for my son was born blind and he received a lot of help. So my wife and I started a foundation to help those who were little misfortune. Now, my son can see now. He's in heaven. Yeah. He can play basketball now. My wife no longer has cancer, so we want to show our regards and our thanks. So every dime, we'll go to our foundation. And... Uh,
2: what is the name of the foundation?
0: The Gary and Dottie Capers Foundation. Name for my child and for my wife. And uh, they're buried in All into National Cemetery. And when I come back from Bishopville, I, you know, they're trying to get me to move back home. They think that's the place I should be. There's a lot of stories going on whether I was the first James Cape for you know, or the second one, since his no birthday for me. You know, they think maybe the aliens brought me here or something like that. But
2: i don't know maybe superman maybe from krypton someone but (laughs) i'm gonna take a quick little picture here before we go so i can share that as well and again thank you so much have a good restful afternoon thank you for for taking the time and energy to be with us i appreciate it so much
1: all right everyone there you have it that wraps up another episode of american snippets if you got any value out of this episode you enjoyed listening in to major james capers please do us a favor and leave us a five star review on itunes Make sure you share this episode with a friend, share this episode on Instagram, on social media, on Facebook. Uh, This is a message and a story that really needs to be heard today. Uh, I'd like to personally thank Major James Capers for for sitting down with us, taking the time to share his story. It is, again, an absolute honor and a privilege to have him on the show today. And don't forget to go to americansnippets.com to check out the featured article of the week. Every single week, we do a a full article and story on every one of our guests. So make sure you check out the one we did with Major James Capers. You can re-listen to the podcast there and watch the video interview we did with Major James Capers in its entirety there as well. I'll also include a link so you can pick up Major James Capers' memoir and book and donate to his charity. Again, thanks for being here today and listening in. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are.